My name is Christina Lay, and I am a U.S. Uh, career diplomat uh, with the U.S. Department of State. Uh, my next assignment is uh, to Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam, in the Consulate General. I'll be serving as the political chief. The views presented here do not necessarily represent that of the U.S. government. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over. Thank you so much for coming on today. What was your childhood like where you grew up? Well, I um, grew up in Oakland, California in the 80s and 90s. Uh, my parents came to Vietnam uh, after the war uh, there. And um, I'm sure that you know, but the 80s and 90s were not exactly um, what it's uh, like in Oakland today. Um, there was definitely a lot of uh, crime and violence. There was the Rodney King riots, uh, LA riots, and uh, discrimination against Asian Americans. Um, my siblings and I uh, were the only non-Black uh, kids in our school. Um, and then when I was about 10, we moved to Boston, which was a completely different experience. Um, predominantly white, uh, much more affluent than Oakland. And uh, we experienced racism in kind of a different way there. Um, so these two very different experiences uh, shaped my uh, views on inequality and race and social justice in America, um, and also on our American educational system and the types of resources that are provided to, to public schools. Um, and in both uh, communities, there were Vietnamese American uh, communities there, um, but the Boston one was much smaller. Um, and we didn't grow up with a lot of cousins and extended family. And so my influence, cultural references were mainly from my parents. Um, so that is basically um, my childhood. What made them move to Boston from Oakland? So Oakland at that time, I mentioned there was a lot of violence going on. Um, and so my parents were really afraid for me and my siblings. Um, they witnessed a lot of school violence, not like in terms of guns, as you see today, but, you know, physical violence and fighting and all that. And they I think they sensed that the educational system wasn't as strong as it could be. Um, and I, my dad, um, he was acquainted with someone in the Boston area who ran a little convenience store out there. And the friend invited him uh, to come out there and he'd show him the ropes. And so he decided it was probably he heard it was a lot safer. The school systems were better, all that. So he uh, moved us all out to the East Coast. What a huge change, right? Because yeah. the West Coast and the East Coast um, at any time is for sure. different. It's a very different environment. Yeah, for sure. I think I'm, I definitely grew up more East Coast than West Coast <laughs> now that I've met a lot of West Coasters. <laughs> so before we get into uh, the, the work that you do, what does it mean to be Vietnamese to you? That is such an interesting question. Um, I really love listening to your podcast and listening to other people's responses. I find that uh, really, really eye-opening. Um, for me, I think it's an incredible time to be Vietnamese today. Um, not only is Vietnam changing and advancing rapidly, um, it's becoming America's number eight trade partner. It's number five number of uh, Vietnamese students studying in America. Um, and it's on track to become a high-income country by 2045, which is incredible. There's limitless potential in our bilateral relationship, um, which will benefit both uh, people in both countries. And then from the Vietnamese-American perspective, I think America has progressed immensely from the cultural view of Vietnam as synonymous to war. Um, and growing up um, 
my view of our presence in the United States was that we were the product of war. And there was some level of shame um, to that, given the, given the political complexities at that time, um, domestically. Um, and we were living through generational trauma um, and secondary memories that weren't our own. Um, you know, we were bridging cultural um, divides between America and Vietnam for our parents. We weren't fully American, not fully Vietnamese. Um, and behind us was this painful past for both Vietnam and America. But today, it's incredible. I see a very bright and beautiful future for Vietnamese Americans. I wish we, I had what we have today um, um, when I was growing up. And there's an emergence of um, Vietnamese studies in universities and colleges in America. Um, there's films and podcasts like this one that um, celebrate our culture and diversity and contributions and social media and the internet just allows people to learn more about the country of Vietnam, but also Vietnamese Americans here. And people can express themselves in ways that I don't think I knew was available to me growing up. And we aren't um, now defined by war and this past um, in which political decisions were made by an elite few, but instead, you know, while our parents may have been refugees um, and victims of war who struggled and survived, today they're proudly American and proudly Vietnamese. Um, and for those of us who were born in America, I think we're a generation who have evolved um, from direct grief and death. Um, we are embracing all the many facets um, uh, of being human um, that have always existed, um, but were overshadowed by this history that was told by others, this history of war. And so today we're entrepreneurs and we're journalists and musicians and athletes. Um, we're writers and professors and doctors um, and diplomats. Um, we're no longer just the children of our parents, but we are ourselves parents and aunts and uncles who can influence the next generation and expand what other people in our own community see as Vietnamese. And so while we may have been a product of war, we're more than a war and we are Vietnamese and we are American and we are ourselves and, and we don't need to be defined to be whole. So I am incredibly proud and happy to be Vietnamese American today and then have this monumental shift and change and um, in our culture um, that Vietnamese Americans do not have to be defined by war. What a rich and beautiful answer. Thank you for that. I want to go back to that remark that you just made about Vietnam being a high income country by 2045. I have a, it's a two part question. First of all, what is the metric that places Vietnam as a high income? And secondly, what is causing that to happen in 20 by 2045? I think there's a lot of factors. I'm, I'm no expert um, on the econ economic side of things, but uh, I do think that there's more, there's a shift more in terms of foreign direct investment in, in Vietnam, as you know yourself. Um, uh, there's a lot of people who are interested in Vietnam seeing it as this um, investment opportunity just has a huge uh, potential for growth in terms of the popula young population, um, the higher income that people have, but also as a direct alternative to China. Uh, we've seen in the past few years uh, as a result of China's policies regarding COVID, a lot of companies have redirected their operations to Vietnam. Um, a lot of people see it as a better alternative. Um, and then, you know, we don't, I don't really um, 
have the particulars and details to get into it, but even this past week, the uh, Biden administration announced restrictions on um, doing business in China, which I think will will affect Vietnam indirectly. You speak many languages very well and fluently, um, Greek, Spanish, English, <laughs> Kyrgyz. Kyrgyz, uh, yeah. Kyrgyz. I, I recently heard that um, you know you scored uh, for your Vietnamese uh, language test. Um, I, I wonder what that mechanical side of somebody's brain like yours to take in all of the ability to speak these languages. Like, what's the? I, I simply don't know how to ask this question, but mechanically, what do you think is driving that ability? For you to learn this at high level, <laughs> um, yeah, I think. Well, I'm very privileged. Very, um, I have the great opportunity through my work to, you know, study languages full time. So I, I do think that that is a huge part of it. You know, you, people who pick up, you know, Duolingo or uh, classes here and there, it really takes uh, definitely dedicated time and effort to get to any level in a language. But I also think it's it's just practice. I know myself. I know. Um, that I'm a visual learner. I know I need to practice with actual native speakers in order to get better. I need to be able to not be afraid of making mistakes and looking silly if I make mistakes when I'm speaking. Um, always writing down new words, looking them up later, committing them to memory, things like that. I think it's just um, uh, after so many iterations of learning different languages, I know how I learn and how uh, to improve. There are other people, for example, I, I don't, I'm not a... Um, auditory learner. So I can't really pick up things from music or movies that other people do. I have to actually see the written word and actually use them. So I think it, it's it's different for each person. Um, but I, I have just figured out what works for me. And when you say you're privileged to do this full time, I mean, how does that work with the workload that you have uh, for you know, the government, as well as learning full time. How, how, what does that mean? It's hard to, to kind of understand that. Yeah, yeah. So I work uh, for the Department of State, um, and I am part of the U.S. Foreign Service, our diplomatic corps. So I'm a, a U.S. diplomat. And in a lot of other countries, in order to become a diplomat, you have to already come in with um, skills uh, or language proficiency in foreign languages. So for example, I think in Mexico, you have to come in already knowing being fluent in English and a second language. Um, but for the US government, there is no requirement um, because we have a foreign service institute, a school out in Virginia, very close to DC, that is I think 80% dedicated to teaching foreign languages to our US diplomats. And so it's built into our training when we're assigned to uh, serve overseas in a country um, that we have dedicated time to learn that language before we're deployed out there. Um, so for Greek, for example, I was in Greek language for six months before I uh, began my assignment out there. For Japan, it was two years, one year in the U.S. and then a second year in Japan, fully immersed because the language is that difficult. Yeah. So and it just depends on which country you're going to and the level of difficulty of the language. But um, the State Department uh, and, you know, Congress uh, values the, the language proficiency of our diplomats in order to do the work. And so we have dedicated time where we are being paid full-time. That's our full-time job to just learn the language. That is mind-blowing to think. I, yeah. <laughs> cool detail about the, the work that um, that you all do. When you were growing up, did you have 
an inclination to live and and do work beyond the United States? And did you have sort of this a travel bug? I mean, what kind of inspired the future of your life to be doing this kind of work? Um, so I grew up pretty poor in America. Um, so my family, we didn't travel back to Vietnam and we didn't travel overseas. So I didn't really have an inclination to go overseas. It wasn't even a possibility for me. Um, but when I was in college, I studied abroad and that was a really life-changing experience for me. I studied abroad in Spain. I lived with a host family, went to uh, classes completely in Spanish and it was just um, an, an incredible experience uh, to be challenged in that way, but also to see another country's culture and history and, and uh, people. So um, I think that tapped into my love of learning. Um, but also, I think I had always felt like an outsider in America, um, being you know the minority in Oakland and then being the minority in the Boston area. And being overseas was kind of a way to fully embrace that outsiderness, if you will. Um, because no one expected me to know everything. No one expected me to be part of the culture, part of the majority. Um, I could be the outsider looking in and learn and be allowed to make mistakes. Um, and I'd impress other people if uh, I like exceeded the expectation. So that was also a nice reinforcement. Um, and living overseas gave me an opportunity to like, explore and grow in ways that I don't think I could have in the United States. So that kind of sparked my desire to live and work overseas. Speaking of this idea of being an outsider, uh, I often talk about myself as having a difficult time, even at this, I'm mean, turning 48 here uh, in a few months, and I feel still that I'm never fully American and never going to be fully Vietnamese. Do you, Are you afflicted with that pain? I wouldn't necessarily categorize it as pain. I do understand what you're saying. I do feel that I'm never, my Vietnamese will never be at the level where it is, I'm, people will see me as a, a native fluent speaker, but I'm still I'm way better than my colleagues, for example, right? Uh, but you don't get credit for that. Or being American, you know, I feel like there's many ways in which I'm so different from my parents and other VQ where I, I, I am Vietnamese American, I'm not Vietnamese overseas, you know? Um, and yet there's still elements where I don't feel truly American. I don't necessarily think that it's, painful. I do think that sometimes Americans or as humans, we have difficulty coexisting with conflict. And I think that my experiences living overseas has allowed me to be a lot more comfortable with living um, dualities or um, living with conflicting interests or identities, you know, that doesn't make it um, hard to achieve what I want to achieve or to be comfortable or any of that. But I do, I do get what you're saying. Yeah. It was weird for me. I always felt comfortable in being in the Vietnamese community. And I always felt like comfortable being in white America. And, but I just never felt part of it. I felt comfortable, but I didn't feel part. And, valid, you know, it was never validated for me to, to be, it just was never a hundred percent, but I always felt like I understood, you know, being Vietnamese more than my other friends that were Vietnamese that were born in America. But at the same time, like when you go back to, when I went back to Vietnam throughout the last few decades, it just never, I could never be part of them. 
um, yeah, yeah, place to be. Yeah, it is. I do think that's what I mean by we're living in a, such a wonderful period right now in America because I do feel like people who are younger than us, who are Vietnamese American, might not have that experience yeah. because they are they are surrounded by so many examples of being Vietnamese American or the diversity in America in and of itself that. I don't think that they feel like as much of an outsider as we may have uh, when we were growing up or even now, you know, I think there's a, a change in that. And I think that's really beautiful. So when you were in college and you were preparing for a career, um, an unknown, or you didn't have like a, a clear path, what were you thinking that you will be doing? So I in, initially started studying economics at the University of Chicago, which is what it's known for. And it was incredibly diff difficult and theoretical. And the University of Chicago is very rigorous academically. And so I switched, ended up switching to international studies and political science because I took a, a course that was kind of um, between uh, economics and, um, and political science that really fascinated me. So I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, after I graduated, I didn't, um, I did, I had felt some pressure to go to graduate school, go to law school, um, more traditional paths. Um, but I discovered the Peace Corps, which was an opportunity for me to go overseas, live and work overseas while at the same time, um, deferring student loan repayments, <laughs> which was uh, very key. Um, this allowed me time to think about what I wanted to do while at the same time, um, helping others, uh, getting involved in public service and doing something worthwhile with my time. Um, so, um, you know, that, that's what I decided to do. And, and I think that is sort of the path that led me to a career in the foreign service. Um, I, my parents definitely were not very happy <laughs> with the Peace Corps. They didn't really understand what it was. Uh, I, my mom even sent me to my uncle to get a lecture. Uh, and uh, he was, you know, basically telling me, uh, my parents didn't flee a third world country for me to go back to one, um, you know, that um, my parents wasted all this money on a fancy school tuition for me to just volunteer, you know, overseas. But um, I think that's a conflict that we deal with too, honoring and sacrificing, uh, honoring the sa and respecting the sacrifices that our parents made coming to America, but at the same time trying to chart our own paths and figure out what we want to do with our, our own lives, um, not for ourselves and not for them. I think there's very few people in America who has have even heard of the Peace Corps, let alone know what the Peace Corps is about. <laughs> Can you tell us a little about what the Peace Corps is and what your experience was and what country, the, the whole nine? Yeah, sure. So uh, Peace Corps was started by um, John F. Kennedy, and it was a way to provide Americans with an opportunity to serve uh, America, serve our country overseas. Um, public service, uh, going to different countries around the world and volunteering for uh, 27 months. So a little over two years, three months of training and two years of your assignment. Um, and the goals of the Peace Corps is basically to um, bring American values and um, ideas, uh, exposing other countries to uh, America, um, but also bringing back ideas and uh, cultures from other countries back to America. Um, and so I think um, it, I think predominantly it has been the majority uh, white uh, for uh, volunteers. And that's because it is 
um, you know, for a lot of immigrants, uh, immigrant children in America, it's, you know, you have a choice of after graduating, going into the private sector or going into a field where you immediately make money to, you know, help back pay your student loans, but also support family members, um, extended family. And I think that that's a luxury that a, a lot of other, a lot of people, um, to go to the Peace Corps is a luxury that a lot of people don't have. Um, and so I think Peace Corps is trying to diversify now, especially trying to represent um, the, the variety and diversity of uh, people in America overseas uh, to foreigners. Um, but yeah, it was an incredible experience. It was a very difficult experience. Um, it definitely was um, one of the most challenging experiences of my life, but it also taught me a lot of things about myself, you know. I think it even made me feel closer to my parents, uh, going to another country and understanding what it was like to go, not speaking the language, not understanding the culture, having to adapt, um, you know, the beginning stages just um, gesticulating or, you know, trying to communicate with people, but, uh, and living in, in uh, you know, rural areas that were extremely um, deprived and, and, lacking in resources. So it made me understand a lot about um, what Vietnam was probably like for them growing up and then what it was like to go to America being um, completely for a, a completely foreign experience for them. So w- when you get dropped into a country, a third world country like that, do you have to live with in families that are, you know, basically uh, dirt floors and or you put in a hotel uh, in a proper Peace Corps sort of, uh, you know, sanctuary? Uh, I think it depends on your assignment and and the, and the situation you're in, that, what country you're in. Um, for me, I the first three months, it's they kind of ease you into it. You're living in a training village with the other American volunteers. Uh, you live with a host family. And every day you study the language and you get um, uh, technical training to do your job. Um, and then every lunch and every evening you go back to your host family and, you know, it's, it was the most, it's the most amazing language learning experience because you're learning language during the day and you're coming back and you're actually practicing it with uh, real people who don't speak English. Um, and then after three months of that training, then you're just dropped off into your assignment. And that can be um, you living in an apartment in a, a city in that um, country and teaching at a university or working at a health center or whatever it is, or it could be like my experience, which I think is the majority of people's experiences living in a very rural area, living with a host family. So I lived with a host family for two years, uh, no running water, um, in a house, uh, no dirt roads, all that. Um, I'm teaching English there. I'm like pondering that. That's a <laughs> university of Chicago. <laughs> You're going from like a big name school and you get dropped into the middle of nowhere. Now, when you say assignment, uh, how is that kind of figured out from the U S government? Like what, what is the tenets? What is the goal of an assigned Peace Corps volunteer? So uh, when you join, I, um, you have a, you can list preferences on whatever region you want to go to. I think now it's changed that you can actually specify what countries you want to go to. Um, but when I did the Peace Corps, and this has been a long time now, um, I specified Asia. I really want to somehow get to Asia and have that experience. But um, Kyrgyzstan is considered Central Asia. <laughs> so I ended up in a former Soviet uh, uh, country. Um, and they base your, your assignment in that country on your skill sets as well. 
So there are folks who have um, experience, um, um, you know, with health care or environment, agriculture. Um, I didn't have any of those skill sets, so I fell into the bucket of teaching English. Um, so that's basically uh, how I got my assignment. You know, I often think about this question of where people all around the country, all, all around the world, you, you see intelligence smart people everywhere, right? You you get dropped into a rural place or an underdeveloped country, you run into smart people and you bump into smart, intelligent people everywhere you go on earth. I often wonder what are the things that keep countries as a third world country? I know it's like a really theoretical question, but what is your kind of thoughts on why countries don't get to excel and grow? I know there's probably an infinite amount of answers for that or directions that you can go with, but what are some of the things that really hold countries back? Yeah, that's a really good question. And like you said, there's definitely uh, multiple reasons why countries are still developing or, or, can, or have difficulty advancing. I Cause, cause do you think about Vietnam is like, such a, a hot, like a hotbed of really smart and intelligent people, you know, and I think about like the seventies and the sixties and how could such a, a smart, intelligent group of people get stuck behind and be entrapped in all these situations. But I'm sorry, I, I just, I'll, I'll let you answer. Yeah. I, I think that a, a lot of it has to do with uh, political leadership. Um, I think that really matters a lot in developing countries and advanced countries um, because uh, when you're lacking in strong political leadership of um, people who want the country to advance and want the citizens uh, of that country to do well, you face a lot of vulnerabilities like corruption mm. um, and corruption affects you know, free and fair elections. It affects um, the economic stability of that country for economic investment. You know, other countries will not want to invest if they feel like their money is going to disappear um, or it's at a risk. Um, there is a lot of opportunity for um, things to go wrong if the uh, judicial system is not strong enough to be able to enforce laws um, to ensure that people are protected um, that their economic interests are protected. Um, so I think about uh, certain countries in the world, you know, like um, that have benefited from, um, you know, modeling their systems, political systems after the U.S. and other democracies and how they've benefited economically, um, but also in terms of providing uh, for the social good for their people. So I do think that is a huge element um, of that. And you would think that these political leaders all around the world could see that, could model, you know, best practices off of like the bigger countries, the more developed countries, right? You would think that these leaders would be like, well, look, they did it, you know, and they went from here to there. And why don't we just try to tighten up our ship here? What what causes, I mean, I, other than greed and, 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 um, you know, that kind of uh, ill will, but, you know, you, you would think smart people can figure this out as the leader of a country. 
I think you've hit it though. It is greed. I think it is self-interest, you know, when there's no rule of law and people can benefit individually, personally, I think it's hard to see um, beyond yourself, you know, uh, unless there's rules and, and checks and balances in place to force people to do good for the better of all, right? Um, so I think that is that is a major component in, in why a lot of countries, and you know, there are actually um, psychological social studies that show that people in positions of power, their brain mechanisms change when they have, like, when they have that certain level of power. I think there's, you know, some, some sort of, you know, positive reinforcement in your brain uh, when you have power. So that's really hard to counteract as well. <laughs> it's a dark thought. Um, yeah. <laughs> when you left the Peace Corps and you got back to the United States, what begins to happen? So I get back to the United States and, um, well, when I was in the Peace Corps, uh, there was another Peace Corps volunteer and she, her parents were Peace Corps or were um, U.S. diplomats. And so she convinced me to take the test with her while we were overseas in Kyrgyzstan. Um, so I took the test and I came back to the U.S. and I started working for an NGO um, in D.C. And then I, um, you know, I take I had passed the written part of the exam and I had passed the uh, personal narratives, the essays portion, and they called me in for the oral exam, the oral assessment. And I also passed that. And so I thought, well, you know, this is a opportunity to go live overseas for a couple more years uh, before I decide to go to graduate school um, and pursue whatever career it is that I have figured out in my life to do. Um, but it's been 14 years and I've been loving it. <laughs> so that's basically uh, what happened. So you, you get in and how, how difficult is that process uh, at the time? It is a very extensive process. Um, so in order to become a U.S. diplomat and be a member of the Foreign Service, you have to take a written and oral test um, and write these personal narratives. And the personal narratives are basically six short essays that are in response to prompts um, that ask the candidates to demonstrate or provide examples of their intellectual, interpersonal, communication, leadership skills. And the written test is um, offered only several times a year, and it consists of three multiple choice sections uh, that cover situational judgment, English language and grammar, and then job knowledge. Um, and that last portion covers things like U.S. government, math, uh, economics, society, world history, uh, culture. And then the fourth part of that written test is a timed essay. And then if you pass, uh, if you achieve a certain score in the written test and your personal narratives, then you're invited to take the oral assessment. And the oral assessment is a day-long um, um, interview split into three parts, a group exercise, yeah, a structured interview, and case management exercise. And then once you've passed, um, you're given a score, and then you put on a register. Um, it's a rank-ordered list of all the other successful candidates, and um, there are uh, the 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 number of people who can become um, diplomats every year is mandated, I think, by Congress. And so they, the State Department will invite you from that list if you have a certain number of school, a certain level in your um, score. And then um, you can sit on that register for, I think, up to 18 months. And if you don't get called up, then you have to do the whole process uh, over again. Yeah, it's, it's very, and, it, and that, uh, that's not even mentioning that you have to do a medical, financial, 
criminal uh, background check in this whole process in order to get top secret uh, clearance. Uh, so if you don't pass any of that, then you're you're not uh, joining the foreign service. You know, the LSATs uh, for law school, really, I think for me, it's like a litmus test of how uh, logical you can think and, you know, um, how your mind can can hone in on sort of logical precision. What do you think that these tests, these battery of tests is trying to figure out for people in the foreign service? Uh, so they list basically 13 dimensions, they call it, um, in the foreign service that they're looking for in order to get into the foreign service. And um, I think you'd probably be able to just guess them, but um, they are uh, cultural adaptive stability, composure, your um, judgment, resourcefulness, uh, working with others, your written skills, your communication skills. Um, um, so along those lines, that's what they're basically looking for. It's almost um, like you they're looking for. Yeah, I think so. I mean, they, because the Foreign Service is so diverse in terms of where you're working, what you're doing, that I think you do need to have a foundational um, basis on oral communication, interpersonal skills, judgment in order to be successful. That um, I think, and, and you know, what's interesting is you, the, the criteria for joining, um, you don't need a special degree. You don't need to speak any foreign languages. You just have to be a US citizen between the ages of 20 and 59. That's it. Oh, so it's not too late <laughs> for me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We'll get into that in a bit because, uh, you know, I think it requires traveling and uprooting family, your, you know, family. Yeah. Wow. 59, huh? Yeah. That's, um, yeah. Yeah. That's pretty, that's a pretty wide range. Yes. Yeah. So um, we do have so many different uh, people joining. I have uh, former colleagues who, who were, you know, 55 uh, and who basically, and then the, you know, mandatory retirement age is 65. So they basically were in the foreign service for, just 10 years, um, which was great for them. It was like a second assignment or second um, career after retirement. Yeah. A lot of uh, veterans actually joined as well, military veterans. So after they hit, you know, 20 years in the military, they apply and join and do another 20 years. Well, I got to think about this. This sounds like a <laughs> wonderful adventure. What, um, what is the primary uh task of the Foreign Service of the United States? Um, so since the founding of the United States, I think we have uh, recognized the value of um, establishing and cultivating relationships with other countries uh, in order to advance our U.S. national interests um, abroad and to protect Americans. Um, so our relationships with other countries uh, helps facilitate trade, ensures peace and security, um, and helps tackle global issues and challenges like terrorism or climate change or more recently the pandemic. Um, so we have embassies and consulates all over the world in almost every country in the world. Um, and the diplomats, the foreign service officers uh, who work in these embassies and consulates um, work to engage with other countries to address these global challenges and to promote security and prosperity, democracy and development. So our work is very diverse. It's come, it ranges from issuing visas to people who wanna come um, to America to for tourism or for work, um, to Americans who lose their passports overseas or somehow end up in jail. Um, it ranges from negotiating trade agreements um, to helping support free and fair elections in other countries, 
um, to facilitating facilitating foreign military cooperation. So um, there are five cones in the foreign service. Um, political, economic, management, public diplomacy, and consular, but there's also specialists as well. So uh, medical practitioners, IT, engineering professionals, we have diplomatic security as well. Um, so there's a whole range of um, professions within the foreign service. And is it broken down, uh, in my very simpleton mind, um, the military is broken down sort of in like enlisted, uh, which are sort of the worker bee, blue collar, and officers, <laughs> excuse me. Um, you know, there's so many ways in which we compare, we can compare Department of State to Department of Defense, but that's uh, not one of them, <laughs> actually. We're very similar uh, to DOD in a lot of ways, but that's not one of them. Uh, I think um, we, the Foreign Service Generalists, as we're called, are kind of um, considered able to do all these different kind of uh, cones, quote unquote, career tracks, political, economic, consular, um, and then we have the specialists who have advanced degrees, uh, who are like the doctors, the engineers, and, and all that. So I don't know if they're a direct equivalent to um, officer enlisted uh, corps. Because I, I, I imagine as a layperson thinking about advancing within the structure of foreign service, like what's the ultimate end goal for somebody? Mm, I see. In, yeah. Right? Okay. So I think, okay. Maybe I'll have to retract that then. I think maybe yeah, the way we can make that analogy work is that these specialists, even though they have the advanced degrees, um, are probably um, the enlisted who do not take on leadership roles um, to become ambassadors and all that. And it's actually the um, the generalists who are more like the enlisted who become um, the leaderships uh, leadership uh, in the State so Department ironic, in the future. Right? Yeah. And then, you know, dentists and, and, and doctors in the military don't become, typically don't become the leadership. As right, well, right. Sense. Yeah. And and what is your sort of uh, trajectory? Um, like, in your mind, when you are pursuing, you know, 20 years, 30 years to go to retirement, where does a person like you want to end up in leadership ultimately? So I think... Um... As a career diplomat, the pinnacle of your career would be becoming a U.S. ambassador. Um, so we have, um, you know, 200 some missions all over the world, and two thirds of those positions uh, are career diplomats, uh, people who have been doing the work um, as a diplomat for over 20 years. One third go to political appointees um, who are connected to whatever U.S. administration um, is in office at that time. Um, so I think for a lot of people, the goal is to become an ambassador, uh, be in very high levels uh, of the U.S. government uh, making our policies. Um, but I think in terms of what is a successful career, there are plenty of people, like I said, the, uh, you know, retired military who do another 20 years in the Foreign Service. That can be an extremely successful career, too. I think people have different goals. You know, some people want to be able to travel the world um, or provide opportunities for their kids to, to live overseas. Uh, and that in itself is um, a successful uh, career. Um, and there are others who really want to focus in and narrow in on subject matter, like they are really want to be the experts on Iran policy or um, economic sanctions, or they want to be that China expert, you know, and so advancing in the career ladder isn't necessarily their goal either. So I think it, it varies depending on uh, the person, but I think traditionally it's to become an ambassador. 
Now that leads me to the, the, the next question. What does it take to become an ambassador? Yeah, you know, <laughs> that is a good question. <laughs> I mean, it sounds uh, like a, a hazy, you know, like how do you become a president of the United States, right? It's like one of those things where there probably doesn't sound like a clear pathway, a lot of luck a lot of uh, goodwill that you put out there. I, I just can't imagine what it takes to become that. I think, I think you're right. I think the way the, the foreign service is kind of um, structured um, as you go along in your career, you build connections with people and they, and those connections with people, whether they're you're above you, below you, around you um, help build your reputation um, and help you succeed. And I think, a lot of ambassadors have succeeded because they have built those relationships that they have proven their competence. Uh, they are respected by their peers and others. And if they focus on a subject matter, like, you know, a region of the world, let's say Asia or Africa, or if they focus on a topic matter, um, thematic issue, um, they then have that expertise to be uh, valued and trusted to advance, to take on leadership positions. Um, so, I do think a lot of it's interpersonal skill. A lot of it is your um, intellectual abilities and knowledge. Um, so I don't know. And <laughs> luck, probably. <laughs> uh, and and is it, uh, it appointed by like a committee? How does this work? Yeah. You know, I'm only at the mid-level, really. So all of this is very opaque and not very transparent. Um, I do think that the State Department is trying to make it more transparent, especially as the State Department is attempting to diversify because, you know, six over 60% of the of foreign service is male and almost 80% are white. So uh, that is definitely an issue. And in the senior levels, uh, that's even more pronounced. So for the selection process for leadership positions, they actually have committees um, that decide on who should be in those positions. And usually it's the, we call them bureaus. Um, so Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs, Bureau of European Affairs, Bureau of um, um, African Affairs, they come up with a short list of candidates who they think uh, should be ambassador to X or Y or Z country. And then that is elevated to this committee and the committee is supposed to be uh, diverse and representative of senior leadership in the department who then uh, choose a, a candidate and then that goes to the White House and then the White House approves and the all ambassadorships are presidential appointments. So the ambassador or the president then approves of that person. Um, and of course it goes through a whole process of making sure the country that's receiving that ambassador is in agreement with the person that we as the US government wants to send. It also goes through the Senate. The Senate has to be confirmed by our Senate Foreign Relations Committee as well. So, um here's exciting news for from you you're leaving uh very soon to vietnam yes. to be in vietnam but before we get into that does the fact that you are a vietnamese person uh by heritage um and one day becoming an ambassador from the united states to vietnam is that a political sort of quagmire for the state department or is that something that could typically happen? Hmm. I, the U.S. government doesn't have a policy of not sending people because of their um, ethnic um, heritage. Um, so 
we have had uh, ambassadors in the past who have been of that country, represent that country. The first example that comes to mind for, uh, to me is uh, Sun Kim, our ambassador to Indonesia right now. He was He's of uh, Korean uh, heritage and was our ambassador to uh, South Korea, which was an incredible, cr incredible um, way to represent the yeah. diversity of America. Um, so it's, we're definitely not precluded in any sense. Uh, it is a political decision at, at the highest levels uh, for those types of assignments. I think at the lower levels, it becomes a lot more complicated because um, we want to be able to balance um, using the skill sets, skill sets that people have in terms of linguistic or cultural or um, uh, substantial knowledge that they have to bear when they are of a certain ethnic heritage, while at the same time making sure that um, there aren't any security concerns about that person serving in that country. Um, so, you know, we have had, we call them assignment restrictions that restrict certain uh, diplomats from serving in certain countries because of their ties to that country. And these can be financial ties, maybe they have investments in that country. Um, these can be uh, familial ties, maybe they have a lot of relatives there that will, might impede uh, them from being able to do their work. Um, and this is actually a very, um, this is an issue I'm very passionate about um, because I was the president of the Asian American Foreign Affairs Association, which is a, an association that's part of the Department of State. And during the time that I was president for three years, a few years, and uh, as vice president for one year, uh, we came across a lot of uh, of employees of uh, Asian descent who felt like they were being restricted from assignments uh, based on their heritage uh, and not based on any sort of security risk. Like they're any, they had no financial ties, they didn't have citizenship to that country, they didn't have relatives there. And yet at the same time, there were other employees um, who are non-Asian, who are married to Asian spouses, who are able to serve in those countries, which to a lot of these employees, it felt like discrimination that these employee, other employees had stronger ties, stronger familial ties and financial ties um, that would complicate their service in that country. And yet only because they, the employee themselves were of that ethnic heritage, they were being restricted from serving there. So we, and this was a you know decades long um, fight um, against the department to advocate for reforming this, these procedures to allow people to understand uh, why they were being restricted and be able to refute that information because a lot of times the information was incorrect. It was outdated um, or, you know, you know, if someone said, oh, you have a family ties there, but it turns out all those family members have since passed away since you first joined the department or if you, um, the financial ties you had there, you've, you know, gotten rid of them. Um, so or a lot of times they were wrong, you know, incorrect information that was based on another person that somehow their file got into yours. Um, so we basically um, advocated the department to create an appeals process that allowed people to see their files and see and understand why they're being restricted and then refute that in order to be able to be considered for that assignment again. I think this is to the benefit of the State Department and the American people to have people, you know, who have the linguistic cultural abilities to serve in that country. Um, so this is still an ongoing issue because I think there's still um, some problems in how um, these assignment restrictions and um, preclusions and reviews, have, the nomenclature is very confusing, uh, are, are, uh, are levied uh, for people. So we're, I'm still a member of the um, 
advisory council for this organization and uh, we've been working to try to help uh, the department improve their processes. This organization is an outside entity, obviously uh, beyond the foreign service, right? It's something that's set up not in the government. Or is it, it-, it is. Yeah, it is actually. It's a volunteer organization within the State Department that does include other foreign affairs agencies. So um, we are not while the Department of State is the majority um, of uh, diplomats and foreign service officers serving overseas, there's actually three others, uh, Foreign Commercial Service, part of the Department of Commerce, that helps advance um, trade overseas, uh, Foreign Agricultural Service, that helps promote global food security and advances uh, agricultural exports overseas, and the Foreign um, U.S. Um, Agency for International Development, USAID, which uh, um, helps international development overseas. So those organizations are included among uh, our, in the Asian American Foreign Affairs Association, but the, it is all under U.S. government. Okay. Yeah. You know, there, there is a real thing about white men in countries like Vietnam or Taiwan. You know, it sounds funny, but there's like white guys for hire that will be the figurehead for a corporation just so they have some symbolic uh, ties to like an American company or a British company to make it seem official that it's just not Vietnamese people doing business, but it's somebody at the top who's running the organization as a white man. This is a very real thing in Asia as I've been back and forth um, for over two decades and I see it. And that perception is a, a thing that exists. And I'm so glad that you are being um, in a position to be in, a, in Vietnam. And it, it really shatters that idea, that paradigm of having a white man from the United States do the work that you're going to be doing. Yeah, I do think that um, diversity is our strength. It's our, our you know, competitive advantage that we have in America that we definitely need to tap into and deploy overseas. You know, um, like I said, the statistics bear out that we're still not very diverse. Um, we're not alone in that in a lot of uh, elite institutions in America, of course. Um, but, you know, evidence shows that uh, diverse teams perform better. Um, and diverse diplomatic corps in the Foreign Service would more effectively formulate and, and implement uh, policy in our national interests. And it would build stronger relationships with foreign countries, you know, when they see someone who looks more like them or someone who doesn't look like your, what you traditionally think of as a, an American. I think it expands their worldview of what it is uh, to be American, which, you know, uh, a lot of times people in foreign countries, their views of America are through films and and music videos and all that is not truly representative of the diversity of America. And I think that the lack of diversity also undermines our ability to conduct foreign policy overseas and it harms our foreign policy making process when a lot of people with the same viewpoints are the ones creating our foreign policy and are the decision makers. And we've seen in our history how that's affected the whole world when you know we have a myopic uh, viewpoint and we don't see the diversity of ideas um, to build our foreign policy. And it also prevents us from, from um, fully evolving to face 21st century challenges in the world. Um, it creates groupthink and creates a conformity bias um, that also results in blind spots um, and keeps out diverse points of views. And this ultimately harms US foreign policy and the American people. 
So I think we can't build that vast network of foreign relationships and gain insight in other countries uh, if we don't have diverse people who are able to tap into those different groups. So a woman, a, a, you know, a diplomat is able to converse with uh, women NGOs in a foreign country much um, better, easier than a man. Um, or, you know, conversely, you know, um, it might be possible that men would be able to engage with law enforcement better in a foreign country than a woman would, you know. Well, also, women can also engage with law enforcement in, a, in foreign countries in a way that men can't because they don't have those barriers, you know, in terms of, you know, trying to that, that um, one-up each other, you know. And a lot of times women in foreign countries are seen as, especially American women, as the other. Um, so um, there's ways in which we have this competitive advantage. And if we have more diversity in the foreign service and our diplomatic corps, then we can have uh, better results uh, and better foreign policy. So we had talked uh, earlier a few months ago about you coming on to the podcast today and then hopefully like in another year, have you back on to kind of compare and contrast like the, the ideas. So I want to kind of spend this next um, few minutes talking about what are you excited about? What are you looking forward to in serving in Vietnam? And what do you hope to get out of it? Yeah, so I am extremely excited to serve in Vietnam. This has been a lifelong dream for me uh, to um, to work and live in Vietnam. Um, I think that uh, it's it's definitely a very desirable post. A lot of people uh, among my colleagues want to serve there, and, and I would say uh, that almost all the people who have served there have really enjoyed it, have had wonderful experiences. Um, I do think that there may be challenges for me serving as a Vietnamese American that my colleagues might not face. Um, and so everything I'm about to say is uh, speculative. And uh, so I might be wrong in my assumptions. And you might know more because you've been working and living there uh, on and off yourself. But um, I think this is an incredible opportunity because of the advantages I have um, that will help me do my job better. It's the linguistic skills, the cultural, understanding the cultural nuances, um, and then having some similar shared experiences with Vietnamese people like that, or you know, going to temple or all that, that uh, help foster people-to-people -people ties. Um, but on the flip side, I also um, have been told that I might not be viewed as a, um, a diplomat, that I might be viewed as an interpreter, for example, uh, and not be respected. Um, I have been told that maybe Vietnamese people might assume that I have some biases about Vietnam because my parents are from the South and, and left Vietnam. Um, and then there's also a lot of unconscious biases involved with being young and Asian and female that would exist in any country, um, not just uh, particular to Vietnam. Um, and then there's also the matter of the Vietnamese diaspora community and um, some of whom are vehemently against um, any sort of progress between America and Vietnam. And um, that I also, I think, is a factor in how I'll be perceived there. Um, but I do think that being Vietnamese American is a unique and extraordinary opportunity that speaks to the American experience, right? Um, where else would you have a U.S. diplomat um, serving in the country that their parents are from? Um, whatever challenges that there may be, I, I welcome them as an opportunity to learn and grow uh, and maybe help others learn and grow um, as we work to promote uh, shared interests between our two countries. And what will be your primary goal while you're there for the State Department? 
So I will be, um, uh, so we have embassies in the capitals of all of our foreign, uh, of, uh, foreign countries. And then we have what are called consulates and consulates are basically like branch offices of the uh, embassies um, and they are not in the capital. So in uh, Vietnam, we have our embassy in Hanoi and we have our consulate in Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City. Um, and in the consulate where I'll be working, I'll be the head of the political section. Um, our political section serves to it, it, the area that we cover would be from the central region from Nang down to all the way down to the south. And the embassy covers everything in the north from Nang and up. Um, and so I'll be covering 33 provinces in Vietnam. Um, and I will be working to advise um, the embassy ambassador, uh, political section up there, but also my consul general, who's the head of the consulate um, on political issues in, in Vietnam um, and how they might impact our bilateral relationship. And so these uh, range from different issues involving like um, um, domestic uh, political leadership to um, human rights issues to our uh, political military relationship um, and um, Vietnam's relationship with other countries, like for example, China or Cambodia, um, other ASEAN countries. So we'll basically, I'll basically be serving as uh, an advisor to our leadership um, and also writing reports to Washington about the situation on the ground. And basically, how many people from the United States government, foreign service, are in sort of like these positions like you? Is it like 100 or 50 or, I mean, 1,000 people? Um, I don't remember the exact number, but I believe we are 35,000 uh, strong. Um, and maybe there's about 15,000 uh, diplomats in the U.S. foreign service uh, all over the world. But what about uh, just specifically for Vietnam? Oh, Vietnam. So I don't know the exact number. Embassies are much larger than consulates um, in terms of personnel. I do think we do more visas in the South. And so our consular section might be larger. Um, the political section in the consulate is much, much smaller. There are um, anywhere between three to five Americans uh, working in the political section in the consulate. And I think in the embassy, there's more like 20. Oh, so there's not a big contingency. It's maybe no. 50, maybe from the United States uh, working in the consulate or embassy. I mean, um, no. So the numbers I gave you are just for the political section. So we also have, you know, the management sections, public diplomacy, economic section. So it's it's much larger. But yeah, I do think that one of the issues that we have is that we're chronically understaffed. There's just so much more work to be done. And yet our numbers are uh, dictated by Congress. Um, so we are very small in, in our representation overseas, and we could be doing a lot more. And how long is your assignment? And what does it look like if you want to extend your time there? So my assignment is three years. Um, and that's uh, pretty normal for assignments overseas, unless you're in a, a, you know, a dangerous location or a hardship location, whereas your assignment might be one or two years. Um, and then I have an option to extend for a fourth year, but I don't think that I can extend beyond that. So it will be a, either a three or four year tour. That's pretty heartbreaking when I think about it, because <laughs> if you get your fourth year extension and you love being there so much and you adopt it sort of as a a, a second home, which I, which I imagine you will because of the connections to the people there, it'll be heartbreaking to to finally have to pick up to move 
back home or to the next assignment um, after you're done. Uh, is this something that you had to have gone through before? Uh, you mean changing assignments? Yeah, changing assignments. But I, I'm 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 thinking about specifically for Vietnam one day. Like, what happens yeah. when that happens? Yeah. So it, you know, the way that the Foreign Service is structured, um, you have these um, lim time limited assignments. Uh, basically, uh, in order for you to, the idea, I guess, behind it is that you won't become too local. That you remember to represent the United States oh. overseas. And so by moving every few years, you're not, um, you have a change in perspective. You don't become too entrenched in the local views that you can't represent the U.S. government. Um, but that uh, doesn't mean that you can't return. So there's a lot of returnees. Like our ambassador to Vietnam right now um, is Mark Knapper, and he served as a political counselor in Vietnam before. Um, so this, I think, is either his second or third time in Vietnam. Um, so there are many people who we call them repeat offenders, you know, uh, who go back and over and over again. And that happens, you know, people go to Japan multiple times because the language is so difficult. We have a smaller pool of people who speak the language fluently. This happens with Italy, for example, or Mexico. A lot of people end up uh, going back to their previous uh, country of assignment. And it might be in a different position, a different yeah. city, um, but that does happen. So you're not losing entirely the expertise um, and the knowledge that you have there. Because I think Ted Osis did eight years there, right? He started the, he opened up the cons or the embassy in Saigon um, in the 90s. And then I think came back 20 years later as the ambassador. Amazing. Yeah, what, a, what a story. Yeah. What a story. Yeah. I had him on a few years ago or last year, maybe. But uh, what what an amazing. Yeah. yeah I mean, and he, he's just such a nice and wonderful man. Yes, I read. I listened to the, your podcast. I also read his book, uh, "Nothing Is Impossible," and I saw him speak at two events in in DC. He is an incredible, incredible person. Yeah, I, that would be amazing if one day that that was you know the role that you were able to play. Um, that that would be awesome for you know for all of us to see. <laughs> That's so kind of you. Now, the attrition rate for officers must be high. I imagine. Um, is it, or am I just kind of like, I'm, I'm way off here? A lot of foreign service officers uh, join and see this as a lifelong career. Um, and it's because the benefits are, are great. Um, you know, you don't get a private sector salary, but the benefits in terms of pension, healthcare, job security. Um, and when you're overseas, the government provides the housing uh, for you, as well as educational expenses for children. Um, but um, the State Department now is collecting information and disaggregating information on the types of people who do leave um, to determine whether there, um, a lot of women or minorities are the ones who are leaving, um, because a lot of them have unique challenges, um, such as child care or elder care and other obligations, like other family, extended family that might be financially dependent on them that might affect their ability to continue serve uh, overseas as diplomats. You, you recently got married, and I think your situation is is a very uh, interesting one and a very awesome one when I think about it. Uh, you're, can we talk a little bit about that? Yes, of course. Your uh, husband is a soccer uh, coach for, I think, the Cambodian national team? That's right. Yeah. How, how aligned was the universe for that to happen? Like, How did that all go down? I don't know. I, I sometimes don't believe in fate. And yet this is like really convincing me that, <laughs> that maybe it's fate. Um, 
but he is Argentinian um, and was a professional soccer player, played in uh, several countries um, before injuries uh, led to his uh, retirement, quote unquote, um, in his 20s. He went back to school and got a a coaching license um, and then ended up um, connected to Keisuke Honda, who is this uh, superstar Japanese uh, soccer player. Um, So he ended up working for Keisuke Honda um, in multiple countries all over the world, and then through him started coaching as the national team coach for Cambodia. Um, And now after a hiatus during COVID, he's returned to uh, Cambodia to coach as their um, head coach. Um, And I mean, I couldn't have imagined a completely different uh, career than and then diplomacy. <laughs> but at the same time, sports is diplomacy is a component of um, of uh, the State Department and how we um, develop people to people ties and connect with the people because soccer or football is uh, universal. You know, there's so many other countries in the world that play uh, football and and you don't really need much, you know, you just need a makeshift ball. In a lot of countries, it's not even a ball, right? And the passion is incredible in a lot of countries in the world. And now developing in America too, you know, we have Messi here in the United States, also Argentinian. Uh, we have us, uh, North America hosting the World Cup in 2026. So I think this is an uh, incredible opportunity uh, for America to embrace this sport. And did you get the news of your assignment first or his assignment first? And what happened if you guys didn't get assigned to the same region? So we um, met in Japan when I was assigned there. Um, he was setting up a private club team there uh, right before the pandemic hit. Um, and then the pandemic hit and he ended up being stuck there because he ran out of passport pages in his uh, passport. And the Argentinian embassy had shut down and the Argentinian government was not issuing new passports. So he kept just extending a Japanese tourist visa while he was there. Um, So, you know, after almost a year of this, I said, you know, maybe you should just quit and stay. (laughs) The vaccinations hadn't come out. It's still too dangerous to travel overseas. There weren't international matches with FIFA and soccer. And so he ended up staying in Japan getting his master's online through um, Johann Cruyff Institute, which is out of the University of Barcelona. Um, So um, we ended up, um, I had to bid on my next assignment, and we were thinking that uh, because he has connections in Latin America and uh, in Southeast Asia, that we try for um, one of those uh, countries in that area in order for him to pursue uh, his career as well. there were some offers uh, for Latin America, but I think that he feels very passionate about developing Cambodia soccer. I think he has a very strong personal connection to the people there and um, the development of the country's uh, sport. Um, so, um, and I've always had this dream of, of living and working in Vietnam. So it just seemed to make sense for us to try to uh, find an assignment uh, for myself in, in Southeast Asia. Hopefully we can get him over to Vietnam and coach uh, for the Vietnam. <laughs> Yeah, we'll see. Vietnam is very strong. I think Vietnam's uh, team is the strongest in Southeast Asia. So let's talk about that. So the women's uh, team just um, competed in the in the World Cup. What does that do for a country like Vietnam? I think that's in, it's incredible. I think it, there's a lot of exposure that happens with that. You know, in, in 
I think also the soccer world tends to be, uh, and I, you know, I'm saying this uh, from a place of ignorance because I, I didn't follow soccer. I don't, I'm not a soccer fan. I only watch the World Cup every four years. <laughs> and then when I met my husband, <laughs> started following it more closely. Um, but I do think that it's an incredible opportunity for a lot of countries. Like, I think people love the underdog, you know? So, you know, even the Men's World Cup and the Women's World Cup, people are rooting for Morocco, Jamaica, and Vietnam. I think it's, it's an incredible opportunity to showcase the talent and, and the countries themselves uh, for the world. So I think it, uh, I think it was incredible that Vietnam was able to, to uh, compete in the Women's World Cup this year. You know, 10, 20 years ago, I was convincing, I was trying to convince all my friends to, to take a trip to Vietnam and to be a part of the growth of Vietnam in one way or another, whether it's in spirit or just support or actually moving there like my brother. And today we get to see this sort of participation with the with the women's um, World Cup. And I am able to sit in front of a person like you who's born in America, who is highly articulate, who is going to live in Vietnam for a few years to do this work. I am so proud of how far we've come as the Vietnamese diaspora and Vietnam as a mother country. And it's all coming together. It's a good time to be Vietnamese. And thank you so much for your service to the United States and for the future uh, time that you're going to be spending in Vietnam. Thank you. Thank you for your words. And thanks for this op opportunity to speak to you. I've been listening to your podcast and all the episodes, and I think you're making a huge contribution uh, for the next generation of people too. And not just Vietnamese, Americans and Vietnamese, but you know, I've learned of this podcast through a colleague so, you know, someone completely not involved in, in our diaspora community or in uh, Vietnam. So um, thank you for all that you're doing, too. Thank you for the kind words. And I hope that in a year, you know, we can get back on the podcast to talk about uh, what it was like for you, because you're leaving in a few days. And, you know, maybe uh, by the end of next summer, we can get back on another podcast to hear, you know, um, your experience. And I look forward to that. I, I look forward to that, too. I would love that. Thank you. Thank you, Christina. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade or at least grab an extra latte after getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals 24. That's chime.com slash goals 24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply.